This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 95, April the 15th, 1985. Well, the 15th of April, of course, is not a holiday in America. It's a day that uh, we all pay our taxes reluctantly and unhappily. It's a good day, therefore, in which to consider certain important issues, namely the direction our country is taking. As we discuss this matter, we are privileged today to have Howard Phillips of the Conservative Caucus with us, also of Calcedon, Otto Scott, and Mark Rushdoony. Before we begin, I'd like to call attention to the fact that what Howard is doing at Conservative Caucus is very, very important. This country is full of critics of what has been happening in the past generation or two in the United States. Good critics, able critics. But the problem, of course, is that criticism is not enough. There must be a program of action. We can find from the very early days of the empire in Rome a great many very able critics. They could analyze the deterioration. They could be specific in describing what happened in the sphere of education, in the sphere of the family, and in the sphere of civil government. But when it came to positive action, there was nothing there. It reached a low point when, after a succession of emperors had been murdered and apparently deserved murder, the Roman army, disillusioned with the decline of the empire and the instability of its authorities, turned to the Senate and said, let's restore our republic. Are you ready to take over? What can you do here? The Senate debated the issue and finally told the army to locate a new man to be emperor, and they would sit back and criticize. That, unfortunately, has been the stance of too many but Howard Phillips has been interested in constructive action, in biblical action, and therefore it is a delight to welcome you, Howard, to uh, our fellowship here and to have you on our easy chair. Rush, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, would you like to lead off and tell us exactly some of the things you have in mind here? Well, I think we're at a very interesting point, Rush. The fact is that the liberal agenda has been rejected by the American people. It wasn't rejected for the first time in 1984 or even in 1980. We can go back to the 1960s and see that as early as 1966, the Republicans began to regain uh, virtually all of the seats that they had lost in the election of 1964. In 1968, uh, the Democratic nominee, Hubert Humphrey, received 43% of the total vote. The balance was divided 
between Nixon, who got 43%, and George Wallace, who got about 14%. As badly as Mondale did in 1984, he got no smaller a percentage of the vote than did Humphrey in 1968. They both got 43%. In 1972, George McGovern got 39%. Of course, we have the exception of Jimmy Carter in 1976, but that uh, reinforces rather than undermines the point that I'm making. Carter ran as the symbolically more conservative candidate in 76. He characterized himself as a born-again Christian, as a representative of the nation's most conservative region, of someone who believed in balancing budgets and reorganizing bureaucracy, uh, a nuclear engineer, a farmer, small businessman. Uh, he knew that Poland was not a satellite of the Soviet, was a satellite of the Soviet Union. And he was running against Gerald Ford, who, among other things, was married to a woman who was uh, vocally pro-ERA, pro-abortion, uh, spoke casually of the possibility of her daughter having an affair, and the, uh, the religious right, the values voter, the Christian right, however you wish to describe it, was a swing factor away from Ford to Carter uh, in 1976. That values voter in 1980 went to Ronald Reagan. The uh, uh, conservative Southerners, the peripheral urban ethnics, as they've been called in the North, and others of diverse faiths, who were conservative in their perspective. And uh, all of them went to the Republicans in 84 and in 80 and in 72 and in uh, 68, not so much because of what the Republicans were offering, but because of the fact that they were voting against uh, the uh, values of the great society, which were extremely humanist, pro-quota, pro-homosexual, uh, pro-abortion, anti-free enterprise, anti-patriotism, anti-defense. Now the Republicans haven't really delivered on the expectations which have been raised. Uh, they uh, have followed a detentist foreign policy which has been uh, pro-business, or pro-big business, pro-big bank, but anti-American in many of its connotations around the world. And at home, because of their unwillingness to engage in confrontation with an entrenched establishment which feeds on the federal treasury, they have uh, presided over the largest deficits in the nation's history. Despite the rumors of tax cuts, the reality is that revenues to the federal government have increased dramatically. Non-defense federal spending has increased dramatically. Uh, the, the President's budget for fiscal year 1986, uh, even positing a 3.2% inflation rate based on the cost of living index uh, for fiscal years 1988 and 1989, I believe, nonetheless says that we're going to have to be paying $224 billion a year in interest on the national debt. I think that's a gross understatement. I think uh, just as the national debt has doubled during Reagan's first term from $914 billion in 1980 to $1.84 trillion this year, there's the real chance, perhaps even the likelihood, 
that it will have tripled to three trillion dollars by 1988, uh, even if the uh, interest rate on the debt is only 10 percent, the annual interest payments would come to something in the neighborhood of $300 billion. And if we move into uh, a uh, high interest rate situation, a 20% interest rate, and a hyperinflation, other factors, it's conceivable that we could be talking about a half a trillion dollars a year simply in interest uh, on the national debt. Now, all of this will have political consequences. The American people were comfortable in voting against uh, the liberal values, uh, the God that had failed, uh, the liberal false God, uh, but when their pockets begin to hurt, uh, when uh, unemployment mounts, uh, when it's uh, difficult to buy that car or purchase that home, uh, when the groceries become more expensive, uh, then they're going to look askance at the Republicans. And if the Democrats are shrewd enough to disguise their extreme liberalism, uh, then uh, they may be perceived to be the lesser of two evils. Now, it seems to me that this presents uh, an opportunity and an obligation. Uh, it presents an opportunity in the sense that when you have a crisis, uh, sometimes you can achieve support for extensive changes in public policy. I believe that if we are ready with our vision of constitutional government in the context of biblical law, and if we have uh, set forth this vision, if we have spelled it out, that we can renew American civilization, we can renew this society. I think it's possible, maybe in 1988, maybe in uh, 1992, maybe not at all. But I think it's possible that uh, circumstances may develop where a new uh, political force could emerge as an alternative to the Republicans and the Democrats. Now, because of the election laws, I think it would be very difficult for a new party to spring full-blown. But because of the groundwork that's been laid by John Anderson and George Wallace, technically, not philosophically, but technically, it's easier than it once was to get on the ballot in all 50 states, and we may be faced with a unique set of political circumstances in 88. Well, there's, that's an interesting perspective. Uh, not Just before we started this taping, we brought up the name of Dennis Peacock in uh, the Bay Area, and as you know, Dennis is very active in what I guess would be called the religious right, uh, Calvinist uh, movements, and so forth. Now, the groups with which he's affiliated are actually quite extensive, and they're spread all the way across the United States. Uh, there are a great many more of them than the newspapers appear to know. And it occurred to me that if these young people, and they are mostly young, 30-ish, let's say, between 30 and 45, uh, were to make a drive to take over the county offices of the Republican Party in the next two or three years, they could probably capture the Republican Party grassroots machinery. Otto, I believe you're right, and I don't wish to discourage anyone from doing that. But I would also make the point that there's a lesson to be learned 
from the experience we've had with Ronald Reagan. I believe that uh, Ronald Reagan, who entered Republican politics for the first time in an active way in 1964, concluded from the Goldwater campaign that the only way to be elected on the Republican ticket and to govern as a Republican was to accommodate the big business, big bank, Wall Street wing of the party. He saw Goldwater winning the Republican nomination with the support of Main Street conservatives and then being savaged by the Bill Scrantons and the Nelson Rockefellers. And uh, I think that uh, that is why in 1980 he chose George Bush as his running mate, why shortly after the Detroit Convention he met with David Rockefeller and Henry Kissinger to assure them that he was their boy. That's why he chose Jim Baker to be his chief of staff and had an essentially establishment cabinet uh, with, uh, uh, with people far more of the Bush perspective than the advertised Reagan perspective taking over Treasury, Commerce, the Export-Import Bank, the State Department, and so forth. Uh, now, when I say the Bush perspective, I acknowledge that Al Haig and George Bush were rivals, but nonetheless they had the same uh, basic uh, uh, worldview. I think that from a practical standpoint, uh, Reagan's decision made some sense, although I think it was wrong, because uh, it's very easy for the press to uh, make you look like a fool if you don't lead a united party. If Reagan had not paid obeisance to those forces, uh, surely there would have been at least a significant possibility that he could have been Goldwaterized in the 1980 campaign. If, on the other hand, Reagan had been running as an independent candidate, and I think Reagan almost uniquely at that point had the name recognition and the popular following to be able to do that, he could have run won in a three-way race without having to get 51% of the popular vote and still could have gotten a majority of the Electoral College in such circumstances, much the same as Abraham Lincoln did in 1860 when he won with 39% of the vote. So while I believe that it's entirely possible for the Republican Party to be taken over at the grassroots level, unless the National Committee uh, is controlled, unless the Senatorial Campaign Committee and the Congressional Campaign Committee are controlled. Given the uh, extraordinary financial power they have under the new election laws, it may be a Pyrrhic victory to win uh, those uh, lesser organizational battles. All right. It's interesting to me that you bring up the uh, 1859 uh, situation because we're moving into a similar situation, I think. I think you're right about that. Not for domestic reasons particularly, but for international reasons. Uh, you, you were spelling out the domestic consequences of uh, profligate spending and inflation. Now, what is not so often discussed is the fact that this situation pervades in the, in the entire West. Our situation is paralleled by the situation in Britain, in France, in Italy, in the Benelux countries, in Scandia, in Latin America, and in, even in the areas overseas that we consider part of the Western Bloc. So what we're really talking about is not a financial uh, or a socioeconomic calamity that will overtake the United States, but 
a calamity of similar proportions that will overtake the entire West, as in 1933, only on a much broader scale. Now, this always brings in its wake political changes. And as you know, you're in Washington, so you're in a good position to know, political changes have already been uh, envisioned and are being planned for by some of the shrewdest operators in Washington. They're talking about changing the Constitution. They're talking about changing our form of government. They're going to uh, talk about a, a, a parliamentary system in which the governing party, the majority, will be more easily changed in the case of difficulty. And undoubtedly, it'll be a racially oriented constitution that they're going to come up with. You know, parenthetically, let me just say that in 1975, I had a, a most informative visit to the Soviet Union. Pat Buchanan had arranged for me to be part of a group uh, trip under the auspices of an entity called the American Council of Young Political Leaders. And in the course of our visit to the Soviet Union, we met uh, with a gentleman named Pavel Shitikov, who at that point was the president of the Supreme Soviet. And uh, we asked Mr. Shitikov what the theory of representation was in the Supreme Soviet. And it was precisely the class-based, race-based, sex-based, externally-based theory that the great society has tried to foist upon us in America ever since. He said, well, there are so many seats for women, for the elderly, for farmers, for this sector, for that sector. So in other words, instead of uh, the American tradition of representing families and subsequently of representing individuals, uh, the Soviets have a system where class interests are represented. And that was the transformation in the American polity that occurred during the 1960s. Not only were institutions politicized that had once been private, not only did the government through regulation and subsidy move into business, family life, religion, medicine, culture, education, etc. Not only did it move uh, its intervention from merely the local and the state level to the federal level and from elected officials to appointed officials, it also uh, created a situation where career bureaucrats were setting policy and were also creating private institutions to represent organized special interests. Groups were created by federal bureaucrats to represent the homosexual, to represent the pro-abortion, to represent certain elements of the elderly, the Grey Panthers, for example. Groups were created to... Uh, uh, speak out for welfare rights, uh, to for the unionization of the military, for the rights of so-called unemployed workers, voluntarily unemployed workers. And uh, the Soviets already have that system of representation. And I think you're quite correct that the left has moved far in imposing that Soviet-style polity on the United States, and they would like nothing better than to institutionalize it with the imprimatur of uh, the Constitution. If I may jump back to something that you said earlier about the direction of the parties. One of the low moments for me in the history of American politics and a recognition of what it had become was at the Republican National Convention in San Francisco in 1964. 
Uh, several people I knew were present. I also listened to it on television. And in the course of interviewing William Buckley of the National Review, he was asked how he felt about the Goldwater forces, and he expressed his disapproval. And he said he felt they were out of place in American politics because, he said, I do not believe in ideological confrontation. And he felt that both parties should be uncommitted, really, and pragmatic. The interesting thing is that substantially this apparently represented the position of Republicans and Democrats alike. Now, I don't like uh, Buckley's term, ideological confrontation. What I would say is what he was opposed to was any action on the basis of a faith. And both parties are hostile to that. They are totally pragmatic, which is, of course, why uh, the speeches of the uh, candidates before they're elected all sound alike. Reagan and Carter ran on a similar platform. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt ran on one of the most conservative programs of this century before he was elected. At that time, they appeal in terms of the basic beliefs of the American people to their loyalties and then promptly follow the pattern of politics in this century, which is opposed to ideological mm -hmm. confrontation, opposed to any faith as the premise of action. And this is what, of course, we need. I don't know whether a third party will provide it, but I do know that this is what we must work for. May I respectfully take exception to one uh, connotation of what you said, or, or one aspect of what you said. I think that uh, when they abjure ideological confrontation, what they're saying is that they don't want us to confront their faith in government as the god of the society. In other words, they want both parties to accept the assumption and the presupposition that government uh, is the source of all authority, the ultimate arbiter of right and wrong, yes. and that uh, what particularly has upset them uh, even more about the religious right of recent years than the Goldwater movement of the 1960s is that it represents a direct challenge to the humanist faith, which has been the dominant faith in both political parties. The, yes. uh, the belief that uh, the, uh, the federal government is uh, the source of authority, that if the Supreme Court says something is wrong, it's wrong. If it's right, it's right. There is no higher appeal the belief that uh, uh, we are servants of the government rather than the government uh, being our servant. The perfect example is this Grove City College bill, the so-called Civil Rights Act of 1984 and 1985, where they're attacking Grove City College, which has never been accused of discriminating, has never accepted a penny of federal funding, but uh, which they say ought to be subject to uh, federal regulation and thereby federal control simply for having accepted students who had received uh, federal loans. Now, I don't think it's a wise idea to accept federal loans, 
but there's a dangerous implication uh, in permitting that uh, principle yeah. to become established. Well, this is not particularly new on the part of the government, uh, or is it new on the part of uh, majority uh, politicians? In ideology, to most of these men, is any belief that they don't share. But I recall, and I'm not defending Lester Maddox on this, but I recall when Lester Maddox tried to open a restaurant, and I think it was in Atlanta, that barred black people. The federal government took him to court and proved uh, to the satisfaction of his lawyers that he couldn't do that on the grounds that the salt and the salt shakers of the restaurant were obtained through interstate commerce, and that's what gave them the authority to make the ruling. Now, when you have rulings of that sort, putting the uh, specifics of that case to one side, you're up against what has classically been called a tyranny. Now, one of the effects of tyrannical government, no matter how it uh, excuses itself or rationalizes itself, is that it alienates the people. In a country like our own, where the opposition voices have been kept off the central stages, the articulation of that discontent is apt to be uh, restricted to peripheral situations and to small groups of people. So the majority of Americans don't know how many others are discontented. They may be individually discontented, but they have the feeling that this is just a private feeling restricted to them. They don't realize that tens of millions are alienated in the country from the present system. We've become a spectator society where all of these uh, uh, private networks have been destroyed and uh, we're atomized. We, we watch the television screen and uh, we think we can only be observers rather That's than right. participants. That's right, because we don't, have, we don't hear the uh, opposition voice. We don't hear anyone contradicting. Every, all the megaphones keep blaring the same message. It's almost like the Soviet Union where the megaphones are outside the homes and blast the, the message into the square. And the government uh, has been so structured that in Washington particularly, it is only the organized who are heated. The unorganized, those who are the productive elements in society, earning their living, raising their families, uh, are ignored except uh, when they are able to rise up every four years uh, in a uh, in presidential an, election. All right. Now, it, you, so you, what you have is a fourth dimension, the, the dimension of propaganda. And those individuals who achieve a presence in the world of propaganda, People Magazine, the movies, the stage, or radio, or television, or whatever it is, are, are more people, so to speak. Some pigs are better than others. They, they are the real people that everyone else watches. So we have individuals all across the country who may be individually very successful, very brilliant. But since they're not known, they don't have a presence in the world of propaganda, they're treated as the dead. They're mm -hmm. treated as though they don't live. And a great many millions of Americans mm -hmm. feel that their lives are unimportant because it's not noticed, it's not recorded, it's not visible. Now, what all this adds up to is a government alienated from the people, a governing class that resembles the ancien regime to a certain extent, parasitical, which does all the posturing and does all the speeching and so forth and so on, then you have the silent masses. If the individuals who are governing 
are very sharp, they will say, now is a good time for us to change the rules and tell the discontented masses we're going to change it for their benefit. So this is a very critical and dangerous moment in American history. And it's rendered even more dangerous uh, by the fact that uh, the president and most other national politicians who are characterized as conservative leaders are most reluctant to get into a fight with the establishment. They pride themselves on being non-confrontational. They don't want to uh, uh, have the media uh, in an all-out war with them. They don't want to be in a position where they have to uh, challenge the premises of their adversary and assert countervailing premises because they're not really confident in many cases about their own premises. So therefore Reagan uh, in his administration has, uh, when he's been asked why has he not in five years ever proposed a balanced budget, for example, as Don Lambro asked him recently in an interview that was reprinted by the New York Post, he said, well, it wouldn't have been realistic. We have to do what is realistic. So in other words, he and others uh, are accommodating themselves to the perceived reality instead of uh, doing what leaders ought to do, which is to strive to change a hostile reality. Mark, were you going to say something? Well, the thought occurred to me that perhaps we could have a conservative revolution overnight if we changed our national elections to April 15th. <laughs> that is an excellent People idea. People are far more aware of what their government's doing when they pay their taxes than when they listen to political debate. This is a good day to uh, remark upon that fact. Well, most of the people uh, have the taxes removed from them by transfusion, so to speak, right. before they ever get the money. So they, at the end of the year, uh, they get a refund, and they regard the refund as a form of savings. Uh, if we didn't co have withholding, then you would have a change. You commented about Reagan's observation, it wouldn't be realistic. That's a very important statement, and we have to realize that there is a new theology abroad in the land today, and one of the theologians is a politician, a governor, and I'm not kidding. It's the governor of Colorado, Lamb. It's reality theology. In other words, instead of being governed by God, who's no longer perceived as the reality, as someone who's the creator of heaven and earth, reality theology today says you're governed by the reality of the things around you. So this is a total surrender to the circumstances, to the environment. And this is promulgated as the great new truth by theologians and uh, by uh, taking leadership in that movement because of his political position, Governor Lamb has gained no small notice. As a matter of fact, a theological conference of modernist uh, scholars recently uh, featured Governor Lamb and reality theology. So uh, Reagan is very much in touch with this kind of thinking. Acquiescence and convergence yes. are at the heart of this. First of all, you have to <coughs> uh, accept more and more of what exists <coughs> and not uh, challenge it. 
And second, uh, you have to go along with the idea that uh, the differences are being uh, rooted, that the two civilizations, the Soviet Union and the United States, are converging, which of course is what the liberals would like to do, and that provides a nice cover uh, for the pursuit of profit. The, uh, the Reagan administration has renewed a, a strategy of detente with the Soviet Union worldwide. In Africa, uh, the United States has become the principal ally of the Soviet Union in extending economic aid to communist governments, not just in Ethiopia, which we've heard much, but in Angola and in Mozambique. We're even proposing to train the uh, Marxist-Leninist army in Mozambique to defeat uh, the uh, pro-American uh, freedom fighters, <coughs> even as the Mozambican government praises the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, and even as Afghanistan continues to be a most favored nation in terms of its trade relationships with the United States. Well, this is an old partnership. It really began in World War II. Uh, there is no question about the fact that the United States acquiesced in the Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe. Then we turned against our Chinese ally, Chiang Kai-shek, embargoed him so that his forces were unable to withstand Mao Zedong and company. So China went red. After that, we embraced Castro to the extent that he took over Cuba without having to fight a battle because we embargoed Batista. Batista, not having any armaments or ammunition coming in, couldn't withstand Castro and had to flee. After that, we uh, settled for a stalemate in Korea, not for victory. After that, we uh, settled for a stalemate in Vietnam, not a victory. Even a defeat. And then a defeat. Well, our Congress verified, changed the stalemate to a defeat. Of course, it can be argued that Henry Kissinger uh, made it an inevitable defeat <coughs> when he acquiesced in a ceasefire which permitted the Viet Cong Army to remain in place, uh, poised to attack uh, after the uh, uh, anti-communist forces had, in effect, been destabilized. Very much so. And in Africa, we have moved in concert with the Soviet Union to throw our former, our other allies out of all their colonial possessions. So, therefore, in, a, uh, in terms of Ostpolitik, in terms of uh, real politic or geopolitics, as the Germans used to call it, the Soviet Union and the United States have been immense partners for a long time. Yes, uh, Amalric, in a book of about 20 years ago, a Soviet dissident, spoke of the U.S. as uh, the Soviet Union's great ally. And of course here in this hemisphere we drove Somoza from power even yes. though he had been a strong ally of the United States. Right. We uh, denied the Israelis the right to resupply him yes. at a time when it was merely a lack of bullets in the guns of his National Guard which uh, permitted the Sandinistas to come to power. Now uh, we're on the verge, and by the time people receive this tape, the results will be in, of a vote in the Congress as to whether or not $14 million will be permitted to go to the uh, Nicaraguan resistance. That entire vote could have been avoided if President Reagan had merely insisted last October that the Boland uh, resolution requiring a vote of both houses be excluded 
uh, from the uh, continuing resolution which he signed. And uh, on March 2nd of this year, under State Department pressure, leaders of the Nicaraguan resistance were required to acquiesce in a peace plan uh, which uh, proposes that Mr. Ortega, this is a Reagan administration peace plan, that Daniel Ortega continue as president of Nicaragua. Uh, this is the ex-bank robber who is a Marxist-Leninist in charge of that country. If he will simply provide amnesty to the Contras and uh, if he will permit Arturo Cruz, a State Department-style socialist who formerly served in the Sandinista government, to come back and, and join the cabinet. So we don't have a, uh, a strategy of victory anywhere in the world. The one encouraging thing is that we've begun to adopt a rhetoric of victory in some areas with respect to freedom fighters. Uh, we have talked about supporting anti-Soviet resistance movements around the world, but the reality is that we have discouraged concrete support for those resistance movements in Afghanistan, in Cambodia, in Nicaragua, in Mozambique, uh, in Angola. And uh, hopefully we will someday have an administration uh, which uh, believes and acts on those words which have been uttered by this administration. I think the administration is waiting to find another country that is a little speck on the map like Grenada to flex its muscles and prove <clears throat> how tough it can be. It will push a Grenada around and Grenada deserved it, but not the Soviet Union, not even a Nicaragua. Well, we have a, <clears throat> a very sinister development on the South Africa level. The argument that's being pursued in South Africa is that one man, one vote is the only equitable system. Now, let's assume that the campaign succeeds. <clears throat> and then, of course, South Africa will have one election once, mm -hmm. which uh, means that whoever wins the election will be black, and then all further elections will be stopped, as they have been in Zimbabwe and, and the rest of black Africa. I think the essential fact is that when that election occurs, uh, it will not be enough for that one person to be black. It will have to be a black Marxist, because in Rhodesia, a black Christian who was anti-communist and pro-American was indeed elected prime minister of Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. But because he was not a Marxist, with the help of the United States and the United Kingdom, he was driven from office. And we now have that Marxist, Robert Mugabe, who is massacring his black population and uh, continues to receive uh, more than $30 million a year in aid from the Reagan administration, all the while he is abetting uh, Soviet uh, uh, strategic objectives in Africa. Well, <clears throat> after South Africa, then what? A one-man-one vote in Israel, which would eliminate the Jewish state, because the situation in Israel and the situation in South Africa is exactly the same. Arafat wants one-man-one vote in Israel. And that's his program. That's what the PLO is, is, uh, has announced as its platform. They call it, of course, the democratic solution. The uh, Israelis say it would uh, wipe out the Jewish state, and they're not going to commit suicide on the basis of obeying a slogan. The Afrikaners take the same position. I did an article on this very subject, Otto, for my newsletter, and I made the point that... Uh, 
both the uh, Afrikaners and the Israelis are wrong in uh, putting forward a society based on race rather than based on doctrine. And as long as uh, they base uh, their theory of citizenship in either country on race, whether it's uh, Afrikaner or white or Jewish or whatever, uh, that they will be subject uh, to the same argument to that uh, dialectic. Well, the uh, situation in South Africa seems to be evolving toward competence as a measure of citizenship. Although they have taken a leaf from the Soviet Union, which set up certain homelands and nationalities, and uh, the Soviet Union pattern is, as you pointed out before, these nationalities are supposed to have proportional representation in what amounts to a confederated government. That's on paper. The South Africans may do it uh, a little more equitably, I don't know. Uh, they're talking about having the representatives of these homelands join in a confederation, so the Union of South Africa would be restored. And each of the various homeland citizens would have votes inside their own homeland according to their own tribal cultures. That, at least, is their uh, uh, answer to the critics. But our homegrown critics here want one man, one vote, which, of course, opens the gates to chaos, no matter what the defenders say against it. Because what we're looking at in both Israel and South Africa is the potential for massacre. Of course, uh, when America was founded, we did not have one man, one vote in no. America. The, uh, the American uh, covenant, the American uh, polity was based on uh, representation of citizens, mm -hmm. uh, not of bodies. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were certain requirements of citizenship, uh, acceptance of certain principles and values and procedures. And uh, that's something that we have forgotten. Very few Americans today understand uh, the origins of American liberty. We're also increasingly working towards apartheid here in that the American Indian reservation system is being strengthened rather than dismantled. And we are trying to constitute these reservations as separate little principalities uh, within the American system. We're giving them more and more legal immunities. This is extremely important. I, when I was in the government from 1969 to 1973, I may have been one of the few people in the Nixon administration to actually read what they were doing. As Bill Richardson says, do you think we read the bills? <laughs> well, do you think they read the grants and contracts? They really didn't. I did. And I saw the money going out to uh, groups which were consciously uh, implementing a Marxist pro-Soviet agenda in the United States. There is an organization called the National Lawyers Guild. It is one of many uh, communist front organizations in the United States of America. And uh, it was interesting to read the annual convention resolutions of the National Lawyers Guild, uh, a great many of whose members were the employees of these federally funded nonprofit groups, particularly in the legal services program. And one of their objectives was to establish territoriality for the Indian reservations, to create problems for the United States. So they had a conscious strategy of generating these lawsuits, promoting 
property challenges based on old treaties. They had a conscious strategy of aiding the Marxist American Indian movement. As a matter of fact, I remember reading one grant document which uh, required the South Dakota Legal Services Program as a condition of funding to organize the American Indian movement's chapters in six cities in South Dakota. And that was just one example. You could look at uh, the homosexual movement, you could look at the abortion movement, you could look at the pro-Viet Cong movement, the anti-defense, the welfare rights, every one of these movements that work to undermine the values, the principles, the faith, uh, the laws that made America uh, the, the country that it was, they were funded and in many cases instigated by the federal government. Russ, I'd like to get back to uh, one point uh, that, that you touched on with respect to Grenada, and because we were discussing mm -hmm. this uh, off mic. The weakest period of the Reagan presidency was the period from August 31, uh, 1983, to uh, October 25, 1983. On August 31, the Soviets shot down Korean airliner 007 and massacred 269 innocent people, including Congressman Larry McDonald. And Reagan's standing with conservatives was never lower than in the wake of his flaccid, uh, disgraceful non-response. Mm -hmm. uh, then that was all forgotten with the uh, uh, Grenada liberation on October 25th. People were so heartened by that, and I was glad that the Grenada liberation took place. Uh, in this spring's edition of Foreign Affairs magazine, Secretary of State George Shultz has an article which ought to be must-reading for conservatives. In the article, uh, Schultz says, and this was written before the murder of Major Nicholson in uh, Germany, Schultz says, we have to construct a foreign policy which can absorb the shocks of Soviet misbehavior. In other words, we have to cushion the American people against taking the measures that they ought to take uh, when our uh, our, our dignity, our standing, our rights, our liberty as a nation are so violently and, and intentionally assaulted by the Soviets. And there was a very interesting follow-up piece in the New York Times recently that said that the way in which the State Department did respond to the murder of Major Nicholson was the first chance that Secretary Schultz had to implement this new policy which was designed to preserve detente with the Soviet Union, arms control, increased trade, increased uh, credits and bank loans to the Soviet Empire. Now, personally, I, I regard that as treasonous. Yes. And uh, the tragedy is that it's accepted as normal and appropriate, and that Reagan uh, buys the, the policy by saying, uh, yes, this murder of Major Nicholson makes me want to summit with a Soviet leader even more. And then we see uh, his national security advisor, uh, Bud McFarland saying, well, maybe it was a case of mistaken identity. The one fellow who had uh, an appropriate response or who tried to, to uh, demonstrate an appropriate response was Caspar Weinberger, the Secretary of Defense, who refused at first to meet with his uh, Soviet counterparts on procedures for preventing this kind of thing in the future until the Soviets had apologized for the incident and hopefully agreed to make some recompense to the family of the victim, Major Nicholson. He was overruled by uh, the State Department, presumably by uh, President Reagan, because the State Department itself cannot o overrule uh, the Defense Department. But the State Department got its way and said, no, 
we shall meet with the Soviets even if they do not acknowledge responsibility, even if they don't apologize, even if they are not prepared to make restitution to the family. Well, there's a very interesting aspect of Scripture that deals with this. In Psalm 50, I believe in verse 18, this aspect of the law is summed up, namely, that if you see a thief and do not take a stand, or if you see an adulterer and wink at it, you are guilty of consent. You are a partner in the crime and receive God's judgment for the crime as though you were a party to it. Now, we have been a party to all the crimes of the Soviet Union because at least since Roosevelt to the present, the presidents have been ready to wink at one incident after another, to arm the Soviet Union, to do nothing to defend the oppressed people there, to allow Americans to be seized, put into slave labor camps, shot out of the skies several times, or shot in the streets, and have done nothing. Therefore, in terms of Scripture, they are as guilty before God as the Soviets, which means the judgment is going to strike this country as well as the Soviet Union. And, of course, that principle applies generally. We were also speaking before the broadcast about the homosexual plague, yes. which is afflicting the United States. And because our political leaders, uh, and indeed our religious leaders, have been unwilling to condemn homosexuality and to prohibit it in biblical terms and to call down the uh, uh, <clears throat> prohibitions and prescriptions which are called for, and many people who may individually be innocent uh, of uh, homosexual behavior uh, or adulterous behavior, are going to... Uh, suffer ill health, babies, elderly people. There was yes. a case recently of a nun uh, who died as the result of an injection uh, of blood which had apparently come from a homosexual uh, who was a carrier of AIDS. And unless we stand up against abortion, against homosexuality, against uh, mm -hmm. unpunished murder, uh, against uh, evils at home and abroad, this society will be condemned. Yes. Well then. I think that's an appropriate moment for you to go back to uh, your alternatives. Since you knocked down uh, very efficiently the idea of reforming the Republican Party from inside, how would you propose to go about setting up an alternative so that uh, traditional Americans, which is a term I think that embraces all camps, uh, would have a standard to which to rally? Well, I think we have to be able to identify procedures which can uh, provide a route to governing responsibility. But frankly, I think uh, it's a mistake for us to dwell on the procedures. I could uh, talk about uh, this strategy and that strategy and how uh, if we establish a foothold in, in this congressional district or that state well, that's in how 1986, the caucus was set up in uh, the first place. It could it? make a difference, and that's important. And, and I am working on those things and worrying about them. And we could uh, go into some detail on it if we have time. We will. But I think the most important thing is for us to conceive in our own minds and to spell out to the American people 
our vision of the future. In other words, as Russ said at the beginning, we've got to go beyond thinking of ourselves as mere critics and gadflies and begin to think of ourselves as governors. You said at breakfast this morning, quite correctly, that a movement comes into its own uh, when it stops uh, borrowing the prestige of others to provide the leadership and begins growing, training, uh, and supporting its own leaders. We have to get to that point. We have to develop the confidence as a movement to do that. So I think that one of the first things we need to do is anticipate the circumstances which will exist uh, when the consequences of the uh, president, uh, the present uh, federal uh, economic profligacy uh, come to bear. How will we change the budget? Uh, how will we prepare to eliminate uh, programs? How will we define the role of civil government? What will the nature of our foreign policy be? And uh, so I think our major task is to spell that out in detail, not just where we want to be, but how we're going to get there. For example, I think it's uh, very good that Peter Ferrara, in addition to pointing out the failure of Social Security, has come up with ideas for transitioning us from Social Security to a situation where uh, people are encouraged to invest uh, in their retirement through private means so that the Social Security uh, system can be supplanted. I think that uh, a great deal of what has to be done is private as, as the tithe becomes a more common practice and as, and as private institutions are developed which do a better job of solving problems which uh, government has uh, taken upon itself to attempt to, to solve. That's part of it. Well, don't forget that almost everyone seems to believe we're heading into some sort of a cataclysm. Don't forget the uh, response of governments to emergencies. This is what John Adams referred to as the old trick. I've forgotten exactly how he put it, but he said in effect, to use every emergency as an excuse to expand the authority of the sovereign. Precisely. If we go into an emergency, we are going to be <clears throat> confronted in all likelihood with a situation similar to that of Britain. When Britain went into World War II, which they got into as a result of a long period of weakness and stupidity and appeasement, they suspended elections. They set up a coalition government, and there were no elections for, what was it, 10 years? I've forgotten. Long time. There was no opportunity for the English people and to of course, do anything. <coughs> during uh, the American war between the states, uh, in effect, civil liberties and normal procedures were uh, suspended. Were suspended. Uh, there are uh, grave questions raised about the legitimacy of Lincoln's re-election in 1864 yeah, that's right. and, and other elements. There's no question about it. The danger is that when the crisis comes, we will get more socialism, more statism, uh, more of this uh, effort to tamper with the Constitution. All the more reason why we must urgently work to uh, uh, perfect our own thinking about what needs to be done and then uh, develop a constituency for the program that emerges. Our time is almost over. We have just about uh, four, four and a half minutes left. So is there a last word, all yes. concerned, Mark? Uh, supposing this, sooner or later, Reagan's going to have to be blamed for these huge deficits, how are the conservatives going to 
shake the image of Ronald Reagan as the conservative candidate? Well, frankly, I think most conservatives, uh, as, uh, as generally conceived, won't be able to because they have said, my party right or wrong, my president uh, right or wrong. There are, however, a number of people, uh, those in this room included, and others, who have uh, said, no, we will not submerge uh, our commitment to uh, uh, sound uh, concepts and to sound policies uh, to temporary partisanship or uh, affection for an individual. And I think that it is known that some of us have taken that position, and we have uh, perhaps more credibility than the others, and a special responsibility as well. Otto, you have something to say? No, I'm exhausted. <laughs> Howard, do you want to take a couple of minutes to uh, add a word or two? Well, uh, I'd simply say that you were too generous uh, in the beginning in suggesting that, uh, uh, that we had reached the point where we've succeeded in moving from being critic to becoming governor. Uh, I think we understand what needs to be done, but we need a great deal of help in determining how to do that. I think we need to think about how conservatives uh, today will deal with problems of crime. How do we move toward a system based not on uh, prisons and paroles and pardons, but based on the biblical concepts of execution and restitution. Uh, if, uh, if a person is a threat to the physical safety of others, execution is appropriate. If not, that person should be indentured uh, to the victim. That's one area where we need to spell out policy. We need to spell out policy in terms of welfare. Yes, we want to get the federal government out of the welfare business, out of the education business. Uh, what are we uh, doing? Uh, through the tithe and in other areas to supplant this. We have to spell that out. We have to develop a theory which uh, reseizes the high ground uh, from us. Everyone has uh, a desire for righteousness uh, somewhere in their heart, engraved on their heart and their conscience. But different people interpret uh, righteousness differently. We have to show that, uh, uh, that the theory of justice uh, to which we're committed, the theory of biblical justice, uh, is one which is relevant to today's world and is morally superior to the humanist system of justice, which our adversaries have unsuccessfully uh, tried to apply for so many decades. Can you give the address of Conservative Caucus so that those who are interested can send in a gift and be on your mailing list? The Conservative Caucus Foundation, which is tax-deductible, and the Conservative Caucus, which is uh, an advocacy organization and not tax-deductible, are both at the same address, 450 Maple Avenue East, Vienna, Virginia, 22180. You have, besides that, a newsletter, which I believe is $100 a year, <clears throat> and what's the name of it and the address? The Howard Phillips Issues and Strategy Bulletin, 9520 Bent Creek, B-E-N-T-C-R-E-E-K, Lane, Vienna, Virginia, 22180. Very good. Thank you very much, Howard. It's been a delight to have you here, and we'll look forward to your return. And we're grateful to all you who have listened. We enjoy sharing this time with you. Thank you, and God bless you all.